Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans. Thank you for joining me for part two of my discussion with Professor Ali Cathcart from the University of Stirling. I'm sure glad you decided to to join me for this conversation. If you're new to the podcast, just a little background on this, whether you're looking to connect with your Scottish ancestors, or you're a history buff looking to understand Scotland's wild history better, or you just watched an episode of Outlander and became curious, this podcast is for you. Rather than discussing general Scottish history, I focus on the clans specifically. Some episodes are academic, trying to understand how clans worked, what they were, etc. And some episodes are telling the cool stories from Scotland's colorful past. Some episodes combine the two. So whether you're new to the subject or a professor of Scottish studies, welcome to the podcast. Guys, I am so excited to have you back with me and to hear the second part of my conversation with Allie. We had a great discussion. I'm so grateful that she took the time to come on and, and take a little bit of time out of her afternoon, my morning. We got in there. If you hear any background noise, it's because uh, the best place for me to get some sunlight, because I actually also recorded the video of this, was not the usual place where I have some sound absorbers and... I have some things set up. It was just in a, over by a window where I could get some natural light. And so if the sound is a little bit tinny, or if you can hear some background noises like people trying to fix breakfast, then, um, then please forgive me. But I, I think the volume or the sound quality is good enough that you can, you can really get into it. Um, hey, just some things coming up that I want to hit on before we get back into part two of that conversation. Uh, there is going to be an event that I'm excited about coming up in the month of September. It's going to be September 16th. Uh, here's here's the kind of the the idea of it. It goes, have you ever felt the itch to be more engaged with your family clan? Do you have a desire to experience more of your heritage than just reading your history or seeing a family tree on the wall? Join us for an unforgettable opportunity to meet your fellow clansmen, feast on delicious meats, enjoy an amazing 18th century great hall, and even engage in some friendly competition with the other clans. Being part of a clan is not a spectator sport. Come get engaged with us on September 16th and represent your heritage. So the, the event is called the Clan Conclave Dinner. It's, the, like I said, September 16th. It goes from 6 to 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. This event is happens in Pleasant Grove, Utah. So if you were within a reasonable driving distance of the Wasatch Front in Utah, then click the link that I'll include in the notes below, and it'll take you right over to where you can RSVP so they know how much food to order. But I, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm actually going to be speaking at it. Uh, not not terribly long. It's not some huge... Uh, it's just, I think, just kind of a kickoff discussion that we're going to talk a little about the Scottish clans and teach a little bit some of the things that you've been hearing on this podcast but but then there's going to be so much more to it than that they've got some historical reenactment some sword fighting there's going to be some really cool stuff I've talked with one of the gentlemen Adam Campbell who's helping one of the driving forces behind this I think it's going to be a really cool opportunity so if you're if that's doable at all for where you're listening to this or where you're uh, where you're out of where you live and you can get over to that, then I'd really encourage you to be there. And not because I'm speaking there, although I am really looking forward to being around a group of people who are passionate about this like I am. So there's that. 
Um, I'm excited about my two new ties, my tartan ties that I got from USA Kilts. One's in the Buchanan and one is in the McDougals. I gave a little bit more of background on my connection to those, so I won't bore you with it on this episode. It was in the last episode, but I'm excited. I just think even though the, the whole concept of clan tartans is fairly modern, I'm actually learning that it might go back a little bit farther than I thought it did, but it's not ancient. And I think the idea is cool. I don't care if it was thought of yesterday. The The whole concept of clan tartans, I actually really think is a great idea. And if it hadn't been thought of up to this point, and we're still carrying on with tartans about like people did in the 1500s, then if the idea came to me I, or somebody else, I hope they would have brought it up. I just think it's a cool idea. Anyway, I got the Buchanan and the McDougal, and I, this is going to be perfect to wear with the other stuff I've got from USA Kilts. Guys, the products are very high quality. Um, they make the kilts right there in their place in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Rocky, the driving force behind that and his crew, they're very passionate about what they do. Superior product and awesome customer service. I have great, great uh, interaction with them. They've really been good to work with. And uh, it's free shipping in the U.S. is the other detail I wanted to mention. So Go over to usakilts.com, find yourself something to wear. If it's a kilt, they sell not only awesome kilts, but they sell different types of kilts, and they have everything you should ever wear with a kilt. They also have a really cool YouTube page. It's called USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. So go check them out on YouTube. They've got a lot of cool content there. And they're not, I don't even think they're sponsored for it. I don't think they're making any money off the YouTube channel. They just, they're just they just doing it because they love it. That might have changed. We go through different things. And the last time Rocky and I talked about that thing specifically was a little while ago, but just go on, go on there. I think you'll like it. I've, I've actually watched a lot of their videos. I haven't seen all of it because they have a lot of content, but go on there and check them out. All right, guys, let's get back into this discussion with Allie Cathcart. I just can't say enough how cool I thought this, this opportunity was. Yeah, she's the first Scottish professor that I've interviewed. And as good as this went, you can bet that there'll be more to follow. So enjoy. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was the, in kinship and clientage, you kind of the, your, your, your goal wasn't to give a clan history of the grants or the Macintoshes. You used the two, especially the Macintoshes at the head of clan Hatton to, to teach other things, to teach a broader concepts using them as the example. Did I, did I, am I getting that accurate? And in doing so, you you really flesh out the it's a comparison and contrast with both going on. In some ways, they are very similar, and in some ways, there was some pretty stark contrast. And it reminds me of in a in a different interview of, of Bruce Fumi's with Martin McGregor. He said he doesn't like the term clan system because it implies uniformity throughout, which actually could play back into our earlier conversation of. Up here it was like this, and down there it was like that, and these guys were here, and those guys were there, and I think what I saw really clearly through reading Kinship and Clientage was that there, the uniformity is kind of made up, and there were, were stark contrasts. Can you teach us a little about, even within the Highlands, so we're not talking about Highland versus Lowland anymore, we're talking about with amongst Highlanders, they approached their problems differently, they organized, they their solutions were different. There was some variety there that we don't often give them credit for. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, there's so many factors involved in that. So there is, 
sort of clan organisation. So, for example, the Macintoshes and Clan Hatton was Clan Hatton at best is described as a clan confederation made up of, or an umbrella clan made up of a number of smaller clans. And they accepted the Macintoshes as their head, but they were not part of the Macintosh clan. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you see that elsewhere. We, we tend to think that, you know, this, again, this view that clans are all related to the chief, they're not. You, you see, you see this with the Campbells as well. Much smaller clans will become absorbed within a larger clan. They might retain their own name in, in local circumstances. They might adopt the larger name like the Campbells or the Macintoshes if they're outside of their territory, but they will take the protection of a more powerful chief because clans are always expanding because land is finite okay and if you have more people you need more land so there's always that expansion contraction going on um the grants much more kind of a uniform normal clan you know you mostly related but they expand and they have cadet branches they try to maintain those links between cadet branches but if your cadet branch gains territory you know some distance away or on the other side of a mountain range, you're not going to be able to retain close links quite so easily. Plus, you also then have local circumstances. You know, who's who's your neighbour? Who's are are they friends or are they not? And if they're not, then you have to try and find different alliances to protect you from somebody who might be aggressive, who might try and be expansionist, take over some of your land. Yeah. And and clans respond in different ways to all of those pressures. Um, and that's where you, the clan, and I've just tried to discuss this often, and you see it in larger clans. You saw it with the Gordons of Huntley, I think, as well, but you see it certainly with the Campbells. You see it with the Grants. They will um, communicate. They will discuss. They will form a council with some of the main men in their clan, and they will discuss the best way forward. Um, on top of that, then you have regional lordship. Um, and I discussed this between the, McKen the McIntoshes and Clan Hatton and, and Clan Grant, who, you know, are tenants or hold lands from the Earls of Huntley. Sometimes you have to go along with what he says. They might not like it. Um, but if you go against him, you potentially lose your lands. You, you know, so sometimes it's a really difficult situation. He may require 40 days hosting from you to go against one of his enemies. You may not want to do that. But what are your options? That's yeah, a really good point. Um, that it, it, it drew my mind back to the Gordon of Huntley. For for a lowlander, he had a lot of interest in the Highlands. He's all his hands, fingerprints are all over up in there. And I would be, I was, I was thinking about this. I would be surprised if Gordon of Huntley, one of them, somewhere along the line, didn't have Gaelic for as much as they were involved there. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. They understand the Highlands to be a source of manpower. You know, that's where they can get men from and fighting men. Fighting and men. They have a national prominence because they can bring a lot of men into the field. And that's their own men as well, but also their tenants in the Highlands, no doubt about it. So, anyway, sorry, go back to your question. So, you have all these internal pressures yeah. and you have external pressures as well. And then you have, for example, in the McIntoshes and Clan Hatton, one of the main clans within that was the McPhersons, who at one point do try to set themselves up as a separate clan. It doesn't last for very long, but they, they want to break free. So, you know, within, within an individual clan, you have smaller clans joining and you have other branches who are wanting to break free, you know? Yes. Yeah. 
it's complex. So, I mean, Martin's absolutely right in that respect. I, I, there's no sense of a unified clan system. You, you operate differently. And it may depend on, you know, who the chief's wife is. You know, yeah. if he's from a neighbouring clan, then you don't want to upset that relationship. So that impacts your decisions or how you respond to something else. That, that's a really interesting dynamic. And I think it gets overlooked a lot. And I'm sure as a woman, you're probably very conscious about how male centric this story is. But I have picked up on that through studying is like how these and, and you and just based off of the women I associate with and are close to me now, my wife included other loved ones, that the personality of the of the woman, I mean, that personality dynamic between a male clan chief and is she she might be the dominant personality in that relationship that's a very real and we, we often don't have enough information to see that granular of detail in these cases go ahead i can tell you're you've no, got, got some things going in your head uh, i was talking to well i heard jane dawson give a paper on this recently she's looking at catherine um who was the wife of glenn orkey and she said, you know, I always thought she was the exception and now I realize that she's the norm. Um, and I've just written a piece on Agnes Campbell and her daughter Fanula, who both end up over in Ulster, married to Irish lords, um, and trying to look at them and their behavior. And yet, so the English contemporaries at the time are saying, these are powerful women, these are women, they are this, that, and the other. And it's historians who catch them as oh they're just plotting they're just you know it's the machinations of their wives it's, you know, it's, it's more contemporary historians who have dismissed these women as they're not really part of the story <laughs> you sort of think actually yeah let's just dial that back a little bit yeah so, no i yeah i'm probably i i'll stop there but yeah sometimes it, it absolutely does depend on who you're married to who your children are where they are and that's important that's absolutely important yeah that, that in fact when you're explaining that my mind like that's how the whole like the first record of the gala glass was a marriage and she brought with her a bunch of that's uh, really interesting uh, maybe maybe something and i i'm i'm as guilty as anybody i haven't looked into that with to the depth that there is there to look into but i wish we could learn who of these women were like what were their personalities like what what were they coming from and bringing to the table and what kind of influence did they have over their husbands but that's you're not guilty of that because there's, there's so little evidence. I mean, the thing is, we have the evidence for Agnes, Agnes and the Fano because they're in Ireland and the English are writing everything down because they're sending it back to London. Right. In Scotland, we just don't have that evidence. We really don't. That that contrast between the the amount of evidence we have in Ireland and the amount of evidence we have in Scotland, and I don't I don't know why because because we reading Michael Newton's work, I'm impressed by the degree of cultural continuity between Gaelic Ireland and Scotland. And yet at the same time in Scotland, like at the same time that the Irish annals are being written, we have, and I, I'm not sure the pronunciation on his name, the Adelman, Agavnan, his writings, but really he's, he's, there doesn't seem to be like a lot of the Scottish history that I write of that time period, seven, eight, nine hundreds, before you get to the Canmore dynasty, we're, we're turning around and looking at Irish annals. And, and I think we are able to see their, because they have such good documentation, we're able to see their kin groups 
the history of them go back so much farther. And this wasn't something I'd meant to, to get into talking about you with, but it just came up as we we're talking about that, that contrast is these Scottish kin groups, these Scottish clans, we, we have most of them not far, farther back than the 1100s. Yeah. But these, some of these Irish kindreds, they, they go back yeah. two or 300 years or more before that. But I, I'm, I can't help but think, and the more I read this, the, the more I think this, that these clans that we would recognize their names today, like Grant, like McIntosh, McPherson, like McKenzie, I, I can't help but think that they're coming out of early kin groups earlier, but we don't have the name of what that group was called like we do in, in some of their counterparts in Ireland, but they're coming out of already established and powerful kin groups. Um, Farrakhar McIntaggart would be an example of that. He's already, when he comes on the historical record, he's, he can already command a sizable group of people. He had a very strong kin base and he begets the, the Rosses and, and maybe is tied in with a few other clans, but, but earlier than him, we just don't have anything. No, it's no, yeah, it's true. We have the occasional life of saints. Um, we have some abbots keeping manuscripts, but we we don't have anything that resembles the annals, you know. And and so apart from the documentation, which really only starts to pick up in the fifteenth century, there's more. There's a lot of charter evidence much earlier than that. But um, yeah, it's very. It's much more patchy. Yeah. yeah. In my period, the 16th, 17th century, we have so much more in Ireland because literally the English are there writing it all down to send it back to London. You know, they're just report of report of report. We don't have that going on in Scotland. There's hmm. some ambassadorial reports, but not to the same extent. Unfortunately. So um, I, I wonder if some of that some of when we you brought up a misconception about how people's view of the clans is so static and you, you know you brought up that you know then that then the chief acquires the territory over here in this other valley where he doesn't have any kin or any strong links to there i wonder if some of that comes from the clan maps which are yeah you know what i'm talking about these maps of scotland what they got clan territories on them and I, cause I, cause and I'm saying, I wonder about this because this was me for a long time. I would look at that and like, oh, that's the McPherson's right there. And this is the Mackay's right up here. And this is this other group. And then boom, that locks in and you're thinking, okay, everybody in here, this is where all the Mackenzie's lived. And this is their clan territory forever since they became a clan till clans didn't exist. And just it. I think those maps are good for what they're for, as long as you know that. But I don't, you got any thoughts on those clan maps? Like, I mean, they're just a snapshot, really, aren't they? Yeah. They're, they're a reflection of a certain reality at a point in time, but there's no fluidity. And it is very fluid. The grants, for example, I, I wrote about, you know, they, they acquire lands around Glenorchard and Glenmoriston, and they literally send some of their clan over to settle because they have nobody there. Right. So, there is that degree of movement. Um, it's like the Campbells, they they acquire Cotter through marriage. And throughout the 16th century, you see the development of the Campbells of Cotter, who become incredibly powerful. But yeah. that only starts at the early 16th century when they marry and acquire land there. Um, so, it, it, yeah, the, the, yeah, the clan maps probably aren't helpful. <laughs> I think I think if you uh, if you know what you're looking at, you know what it's good for. They can be helpful. But 
a lot of people don't know. They don't even know the questions to ask there. They don't even know where to draw lines and like where, okay, this is good for this. Or the, maybe not draw lines, but the questions to ask about it. But um, it does remind me of something I read from John Bannerman, who was talking about the McDonald claim to the, Lord, uh, the Earldom of Ross. And before the, the Loch Alsh branch, like you're talking about the Campbells establishing Calder and before the Loch Alsh branch was established, they didn't really have a, a kin group or any kin base. So it was only what they could enforce by power, by, by force, by strength, instead of developing that kinship tie. And that's why it never really worked out that well for them. Yeah. I mean, they, they acquired Ross really through marriage. Mm -hmm. And, and absolutely and you see this elsewhere with lowland families as well when you might acquire something you might acquire legal title to something and, and I, I i find that the distinction between what i call what you have what's property and what's possession so property is something you have legal title for but possession is something you actually possess you you use the land you work the land you have control of the land and those can be very different um, that, that's a really interesting distinction thank you for helping us with that the Property versus possession. Love it. That's go ahead. People there. Right. How do you enforce that possession? Because if you possess, there's that lovely title in Scots, the phrase in Scots, when you're given a land chart, it says you get to brook and joyce these lands, hmm. which means you get to work and enjoy. How do you get you might get, you know, your sheepskin charter telling you now in this bit of land, but how do you brook and joyce it, you know? Yeah. That, that, that's the problem. And that was hard to do without a kinship tie. Now, in, in kinship inclinage, you talk about different ways that kinship could develop. You you can do bonds of different types, man rent or kin, or uh, was it bond of friendship? You could, and most of those are written even if when it was being maybe you can just maybe speak for just a, a minute on on this aspect i don't think as well well understood even when de developing a bond to establish a kin connection with a group that's not actually kin to you they still would use kinship terms it was all expressed in that context go ahead now before we hear ali comment more on that subject i'd just like to put in a quick word for my sponsor usa kilts guys i've had a very good relationship with them over the years they have been very quick to respond to inquiries they've noticed small little details in some of my orders uh, one time that they caught a measurement that that didn't look right on my original kilt that we started off with guys they, they pay attention to detail because they love what they do and because they love what they do their products are awesome their customer service is awesome so go there to usakilts.com for anything that you might need free shipping in the u.s if you want to display your scottish heritage or your connection to this awesome history also go check their youtube channel out at the channel is called usa kilts and kilt USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. I always get tongue-tied on that. They got tons of cool content, and uh, not just about kilts, but about history and culture, so go check them out. Thanks. No, this is something I'm still fascinated by, really. And so bonding was a particularly Scottish thing throughout the 15th and 16th century. It's really interesting. We have this explosion, and people who work outside the period, you know, when you, you say bonds of man rent, and they just look at you and you go, what? Um so there's bonds of man rent and bonds of friendship, and they are ways of establishing uh, what I call it, 
fictive kinship. So it's not blood kinship, it's not, but it's ties of kin. They're effectively to replicate ties of kin through other means. Um, but they're expressed, as you said, in ties of kinship. Um, but you see this all over the place. You know, James VI and first writes to Elizabeth and calls her, her his dear sister and dearest cousin, and they're not that closely related. You know, the use of kinship terms, I think, is used deliberately to express a much closer relationship, even if you don't mean it. You know, Henry VIII and James V, dearest loving uncle, dearest nephew, and they hated each other, absolutely hated each other. In clans, you know, they, they, this lovely phrase where they talk about, you know, if they're promising, to, you know, I will support you in, you know, in a bond of friendship or a bond of man, if you're, it, sometimes they're contracted for specific reasons or specific periods, and said so that, you know, I will join you in any hostings or I will protect you and give good allegiance. Me, my dependents, my kin, my tenants, my friends, you know, there's this long list and distinguishing who's who in that list is, you know, there's massive overlap because your kin are also your dependents yeah. and sometimes your tenants, but then who are your friends if not already incorporated? So there's this massive list that they, they you need to think, well, that's everybody, you know, and, and uh, you know, the terms of that are really interesting. And it's something I still find really interesting when you've listed all these terms that kin, friends, tenants will what's the you know how do you distinguish between them i i yeah and i think that's a, when we're talking about a clan coming together yes it's kinship in the core of it but there was other types of relationships like the words that you just used express all around that core of kinship that are not blood and i was thinking of as you were describing that stephen boardman's thesis was about bonds of man rent or, or there are various types of bonds and he uses both Highland and Lowland examples of this. And the language is very similar throughout. I find those bonds interesting because they're documentation of when we're trying to find, was this group uh, or just an aristocratic family or did they operate like a, like a clan? And I, I understand that this is just maybe a, a, just a little word to some of the people listening. The, the word clan, like some of these Lowland people would not would not have they would have pushed back on that use to describe their group but if a highlander were to walk down out of the highlands and start looking at like go down like on the border for example and look at the way they were set up and the way they operated he might have saw a lot of familiarity there and so you see that in these bonds of man rent and their documentation of yes this group was actually organizing and structuring a lot like a clan and I saw that with the Murrays, because there is a, a bond from the 1500s where they're acknowledging such and such as, I don't remember all the names off the top of my head, but I did a, an episode on it. They're acknowledging him as the leadership of the broader, and it's quite an extensive list of, of, of some degree of relation to him. And then they, they do exactly like you just described. They pledge all of those friends, relatives, tenants everybody and if you're in trouble i'll come help you and if i'm in trouble you can help me against anybody minus the sovereign yeah anybody. and that starts to look a lot like a clan and the murrays are a perfect example because they've got highland groups and lowland groups and they kind of all over and they're not tidy when it comes to that highland lowland thing but well yeah like like many of them are but yes it is they they express it in terms of kinship yeah and if 
is only a design period. It's still expressed in, in and often blood is in there as well. Yeah. Well, Ali, what else would you teach us that I'm, I haven't thought of to ask you? If you've got a bunch of people and they're like, they're and a lot of my audience, some of them are very, um, they've already got a head start. They've been studying this for a long time. Um, they, whether it's the clans in general or their own specific ancestors specifically. And then other people who just learn that they have Scottish ancestors. <laughs> they're like, oh, my last name's Scottish. And they're dialing in on this. What is what is something that you see from your angle that would be helpful for them to keep in mind when studying this? Oh my goodness, what question? That is a broad question, I know, but just whatever comes to your head will be probably wonderful. I think and one thing I still pick away at. So I, my, my my last book was on kind of plantations, and now I'm looking at islands, um, and so. But I still keep coming back to that connection between land and people. And I know that's there the whole way through with with the Highlands. I mean, it's still there. There's a really strong connection to land and people. Interesting. And, and how that is expressed. And it's not just, I mean, I often talk about it as land as your basic economic resource. And it is your basic economic resource, but it's more than that. And I think, and we were talking earlier about that, that phrase, uh, kinship tempered by feudalism and feudalism tempered by kinship and I said oh I'm not sure I would express it quite like that anymore um but there is something that I'm still unpicking about what is that connection that relationship between land and people um and I talked about it a little bit in, in kinship and clients when I talked about inalienable possessions there were chiefs who perceived land to be theirs and not part of the clans but yet there are clans who very strongly associated with certain lands so like the mcdonald's were on a long slow decline throughout the 16th century but my word isla was the last thing they were going to let out of their grip you know um and what is that it, it has to be because other people just go somewhere else that enduring relationship between land and people that we still see you know and and it's not just i don't think it's a particularly scottish phenomenon is it um, you see that that longing between that that connection between land and people. Um, I, I think the other thing is that it is never static; it is constantly shifting, and allegiance shift. And I think perhaps the best way to describe that is to look at the allegiances throughout the Jacobite movement. Mm. Um, but it's really hard to paint a clan as one thing because it's not, because a clan is not one person, it's a number of people. And so throughout the Jacobite period, you have clan shifting allegiances, you have individuals within a certain clan on both sides. And some people say, well, that was a tactic so that they wouldn't lose out whatever, you know, whoever won. Yeah. You have somebody on the winning side, and I get that. But that's just painting clan people as, you know, purely strategic. I mean, there were actually real principles. <laughs> they, they were people who had principles and who had beliefs. And some of them absolutely supported James and some of them were signed up. And, and <coughs> So, yeah, it, it sometimes is complicated cutting through all of that myth that has become associated to clans. Um, but they, they are complex and they are constantly changing, whether that is shrinking or expanding. 
but also I, I'm still, and I say this, I've never quite got to the bottom of that connection between land and people and what is that. But I think that's a much bigger question, you know, much bigger question than just a Scottish one. So if you, so you don't, you said now, so far later, you, you don't like the, in, in the Highlands, just for those, because we didn't really hit on it really strongly. It was in our preparation for this, but for those of you who don't know what we're referring to here, it's, she had made a comment in kinship and clientage uh, you were quoting if i was correct and it expressed that in the highlands it was kinship tempered by feudalism in the lowlands it was feudalism tempered by kinship and you say you, you're not that's not really how you would think of it now how would you adjust that statement to make it more accurate according to what you've learned since then i'd probably take feudalism out altogether I, um, I struggle massively, even more now that with the word and the concept than I ever did. We were talking about this earlier. And I think, I think feudalism is one of those systems that as historians we dream up and impose onto the past to help us make sense of it. Um, and it's not, the past is not like, like the contemporary world that we all live in for our sins. It's not straightforward. It's messy. It's complicated. And we, we have law. But if you ever study the law, law changes. It's adapt. It's fluid. It can, it can. Yeah, okay, so that applied here. But does that necessarily apply to these circumstances? I am reading a very long legal case at the minute about a dry stone dike. And I see this, that, okay, in this context, that law might have worked. But actually, in this situation, this is slightly different. You know, so, um, so I would probably take feudalism, the word feudalism altogether. And also, I think the lowlands, it's going back to what we talked about earlier, that what is the distinction between the highlands and lowlands sometimes can be really hard to pinpoint because they are, as if you look at the Gordons of Huntley, there's, there's a family absolutely organised around kinship ties, absolutely organised around kinship ties. I think the landed basis is what matters perhaps more in the lowlands. That distinction between property and possession, I think you see come forward, come forward less so in the lowlands, where I think property titles are much more respected, um, at least on an elite level. Interesting. I was, I was. That reminded me of something. I was just listened to a, a podcast with Murray Pittock on it, and he he was because you talk about the degree to which though that property title was acknowledged or respected and he says some of sometimes you see this kin-based society as, as john bannerman like to like to say it existing longer holding out longer farther away not necessarily along a highland lowland divide but in a how proximal you were to government control or authority and in places that were more distant from let's say edinburgh or some of these other major population centers then then it was more kin more more organized more more focused on the kinship rather than be, be if you had less government power in that area yeah and i think that's 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 right I, I, um you know i think that's the difference between the west highlands and isles and the central and eastern highlands one of the key differences is central and eastern highlands you're much more used to intervention now that wasn't maybe by the crown itself but by their representative which who may have been your lord, it may have been Huntley, but in the, the west coast and the Hebrides and the seaboard, you maybe had a crown ship rocking up once every couple of decades, you know, other than that, you were kind of, you know, 
so you know how much did the crown actually in, interfere in your lives and i often say this to my students when we're looking at parliament you know you know oh but parliament passed this act uh-huh and and how did that impact the people who live in Kintyre or Lewis really you know yeah because how, how is that communicated in the 16th century they get some herald to get on a horse to go to Inverness <laughs> the key borough and stand at a market cross and issue a proclamation relating to somebody on Lewis you know when you think about that in practical terms that's not really an effective way of governing so the further you are from Edinburgh yeah there's much less direct intervention that's so that's so interesting the way you express that I mean I'm just picturing in my head this guy coming up maybe with some friends you know maybe not by himself but probably with a group but still he's standing in front of but let's take the Mackenzie chief who has pretty close to the equivalent of his own army right behind him and you're going to tell him how it is because this guy way 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 south of here said this is how it is and he's like really and good luck with that yeah, yeah, exactly. Good luck with that. Exactly. I, and I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up on an hour here, but um, <laughs> I just acknowledge. I just thought of something like so big that you have focused on. I mean, probably to a greater degree than most other people that I've read about. But um, and maybe in just in closing, you could you could just maybe offer a comment on it. But you, the the reason I like a lot of your research and writing is because. And you acknowledge this in your writing that so much of our focus on the Scottish clans is West Highland Isles centric and you shift your focus to the Eastern Highlands. Still Highlands in, in every sense that we use that term, but you're, you're looking at the grants, you're looking at these different branches of Clan Hatton that, that are, they wouldn't be considered West Highland, but does that mean they are less Gaelic? Does that, I don't know what, in, in that process, is there, what, what have you learned as you've focused more eastward, still in the Highlands, but not so West Highland Isle centric? What, what could you tell us? Um, I think it's, it's probably almost trickier because you do have much more direct crown intervention in the form of your, for, so for the Macintoshes and Clan Hatton and the Grants, it was their landlord. Huntley, you know, and for a lot of that relationship, they didn't like that interference. I mean, one of their Oswald Huntleys beheaded one of the Macintosh chiefs. <laughs> and that clan is your are your tenants. So, you know, relations were not good. Um, and I, what it helped me explore really were those layers of governance. Um, because I think in, in broader Scottish history terms, I think there's far too much focus on the crown and nobles. Okay, there just is. Um, and when you dig down, actually, what I was able to show is that, well, actually, at times, Huntley's behaviour is curtailed because of his tenants, his dependents, who don't go with him. Now, that doesn't happen very often, but sometimes they are held to account for their behaviour. Um, and I, I loved being able to understand that and show that that interaction what's happening in the locality then you've got your regional authority and you've got that crown sitting in edinburgh just that interaction between those three sort of layers of governance really um but it also i think it really helps you understand the, the the blurring of boundaries you know we we talk about that high and lowland line and i've said before it's really unhelpful because it wasn't a line it was a big zone you know a massive zone um and it's it's also it, it's not always the highlanders Right. You know, there, there was um, 
Highlanders give them safe conduct to go to boroughs in the lowlands to trade, and the lowlanders were told not to attack them. That's that's a side of the narrative you very rarely get. Is that you know these guys are under attack from the lowlanders just as much as it's the other way around. It's always portrayed as the Highlanders coming in and you know causing havoc, and yet they just want to go to the boroughs and trade. So when you let and come and they got safe conduct from the crown to do that. And um, so that that interaction, I, I think that 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 whether you want to call it a frontier zone or a boundary region, but where you get that intermixing, I, I find that really interesting. It's not it's not clear cut. It's not you know you're not on the seaboard miles away from any kind of crime intervention. You're 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 facing it much more often, and that's where you know the, the whole issue of language. I have no doubt many of the earls of Huntley probably spoke. Gaelic for for much of the 16th century because they would have had to. How do you communicate with your tenants? They wrote in English or Scots, but they would have perhaps spoken in Gaelic. Um, it, it just, I think I like it because it makes it all much more messy. And you know, I I will always continue to say that is messy. It, it, it just is. Let's stop trying to impose nice, neat theories and to help us make sense of it. Yeah, you learn to revel in the mess. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I, when you're talking about the the one perspective only. The, my ancestors that got me interested in this whole thing were McFarlands, and that's oh. all you hear is them Elevators. praying on lowlands with the cattle lifting. Their whole their pipe tunes about cattle lifting. Their I know, and it's not like they were the only ones who did it. You know, sure. Somehow, yeah, you guys are responsible. That's what you're you're known for. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're right. Well, that's so. If to, to to just kind of restate what you just shared with us about that high, that eastern versus western, western's more remote. So a Macintosh or a Grant or a Farquharson needed to solve different problems than the farther more remote. And one of those is I'm way closer to the the higher authority, and so I gotta I gotta figure this out and I gotta make different decisions. And maybe somebody who's who doesn't have to worry about it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Your, your your lord could easily show up someday as you school. Yeah. 40 days service fees now, you know. When you're further remote, that's less likely to happen. Interesting. Well, Ali, I, I can't even express how grateful I am for you just oh, deciding to take take a, an hour and sit down with me and do this. It's been really educational for me. And I, I really, really do believe that it's gonna be a treat for my my audience to to listen to what you had to say today and, and what you had to teach us. Um, and so just by way of allowing you to give further, and I don't, I don't know if you have any economic endeavors in addition to teaching at the University of, of Sterling, do you have any place where you um, publish content or things that if, if my listeners want to go learn more about what you have to say, your research, what guidance could you give them? I'm, I'm not very good at all that. I don't have a website other than my university website. Um... But I'm really happy for anybody just to drop me an email. I'm, I usually respond. I did respond to you many years ago. Didn't I? That's how been very responsive to me. Yes, thank you so much. And I, I had somebody from Spain email me the other day saying, my dad's a Macintosh. I'd love to ask some questions. I'd, oh, my goodness. Okay, send them to me. You know, so um, I'm really happy for people just to email me. Um, yeah, but beyond my own university website, I'm not, I'm not great at, you know, putting myself out there. I don't do YouTube very often in the way you do, so. Gotcha. Well, I know that you you do have a presence on LinkedIn, and so if people want to to see more there, then and that's so yeah. And and on the university web website, and your your email is probably on that, I imagine. And so, absolutely. 
Okay. Yeah. Allie, thank you so much for, for spending some time with me. I say this morning, it's afternoon where you're at, but uh, thank you again. And, and I really appreciate your time here with us today. No, it's all it's been lovely after all of these years of email, Clint, to actually finally say hello face to face, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So Great. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. I Like I mentioned in the interview there, I have been reading her work and communicating back and forth with her for years now. And it has been, it has helped me so much to understand the nature of Scottish clans, how they operate or organized, and a lot of those nuances in there. Like, not all Scottish clans were the same. Not even all the Highland clans operated exactly the same. And, and all those little details. And what about that Highland Lowland line? And groups on one side versus groups on the other side and all that. I I just thought that that was such a good conversation. She had so much to share. Anyway, I just want to really express how gra- grateful I am that she would take her time to do that and share her knowledge with us. Uh, so thank you for spending that time with Allie and me. And if you might want to share this one, as informative as it was for me, I, I, I imagine it would be for other people. Uh, if you leave a review on your platform that you're listening to this, uh, most of you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, but on any other, they usually have a way to do that. Uh, if you do that, more people will find it. Uh, if you have any com- comments, questions, or you want to contact me about a possible speaking engagement, which I am starting to do now, you can email me at thescottishclans. At, sorry, thescottishclans at gmail.com. Also, if you want to find any free resources, back episodes, links to the online course on the origin of the Scottish clans, or you want to contribute to the effort, you can go to scottish-clans.com and all that stuff is there. And until next time, Marishan Leiden Drasta.
All right, before I turn you over to the answer to that question that I just asked, I'm going to put a little bit of a word in here for my sponsor, USA Kilts. Ladies and gentlemen, they make some mighty fine kilts, very high quality. They're super passionate about what they do. Their customer service is right up there with the quality of their products. I think you can have a great experience if that's where you choose to go to purchase anything that helps you express your enthusiasm for your connection to Scotland, whatever that connection is, whether it's ancestry or whether it's just interest. So go over to usakilts.com for some high-quality products, some awesome customer service, free shipping in the U.S., or go over and check out their YouTube channel at USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. I think you're going to like that too. Tons of cool content on there. They've got a little bit of everything. The core of it is things that help you wear kilts better. How, what do you wear with them? How do you wear it? What can you wear? All these different things. And um, also they get some history and culture mixed in with that too. So, And I think they're really good at anticipating questions that people would have about wearing a kilt or anything else that has to do with Scottish attire. So head on over to their YouTube channel, or if you actually want to go buy something, go to usakilts.com. And now I'm going to let you hear how Allie ha handles that question I just asked her. 